Yeah, I think that, you know, when you don't have like accountability, um, sometimes that um, can leave you floundering a bit. And so one of the ways I did that with um, A Comb of Wishes early on was um, I actually sometimes would sign up for um, workshops, like um, uh, feedback workshops where I knew that I would be turning in pages to other people to read and get feedback on. So that was, you know, a deadline that, you know, I chose to get to have imposed so that I was always moving forward. For a long time, I got stuck in a rut where I was revising the first part of the book over and over and over again. And I never, like, I hadn't even finished my manuscript for a little bit. And I learned, okay, that's not the right way (laughs) to do things. You need to get to the end before you can really, um, you know, revise. And and I also learned the difference between polishing and revising. And so some of what I was doing at the beginning, you know, as a a writer that was still learning was line editing and polishing on something that really had structural changes that might need to be made. You know, we've talked about like, whether parts of the book were in should be in Ophidia's voice, the mermaid or Keela's voice. And so, you know, so I learned that I needed to finish the manuscript first, uh, whatever form, you know, it was in, just get something done and then have other people read it. So being in some of these classes that I signed up for was great to, you know, get feedback along the way. Welcome back to Chalk and Ink, the podcast for teachers who write and writers who teach. I'm your host, Kate Narita, author of 100 Bugs, accounting book and fourth grade teacher. I'm so excited about today's amazing interview with middle grade debut author and middle school ELA and technology teacher, Lisa Stringfellow. Be sure to listen to the end of the episode to find out how to enter the giveaway for A Comb of Wishes. If you teach upper elementary or middle school, this is a title you definitely want to have on your shelves. On today's episode, we talk about the importance of setting goals and being accountable to ourselves how word choice and sentence length determine voice, and why it makes sense to involve students in our professional writing journeys. Let's get started. Welcome, Lisa. I am so excited to have you today here on Chalk and Ink. I just can't wait to talk about your teaching and your writing. I know you have so much to offer us, so thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me, Kate. Yeah, I'm so excited. Could you please t- tell everyone a little bit about who you are as an educator and who you are as an author? Yes. Um, so I'm Lisa Stringfellow, and I currently teach middle school English uh, at an independent school. Um, this is my 28th year in teaching, so it's been a while. Um, in, in that whole time, I've taught um, middle school, primarily fifth and sixth grade. Um, and, uh, as a writer, I am, uh, a debut author. So my first book, A Comb of Wishes is coming out, um, on February 8th, 2022. It's a middle grade fantasy. Um, and I, uh, kind of did a little bit of, um, uh, combining my teaching with my writing. Uh, I actually wrote my book, uh, the early manuscript, uh, along with my students. And so, um, it's kind of really exciting for me to see it coming out. Um, the students that started with me when I started this manuscript, I think are freshmen in college now. (laughs) So (laughs) it's been a while, but, but it's exciting that it's finally come, uh, coming out. 
that's actually a pretty short time. I mean, because if you teach sixth graders and they're freshmen in college, that's only about six or seven years. That's a pretty short amount yeah. of time for a novel. It is. It definitely is, especially a first one that, you know, needed some work. <laughs> <laughs> well, the final product is absolutely glorious. So I was reading in your author note that you were an author mentors match. Were you working yes. on this manuscript during that process as well? Yes, I was. I, um, over the course of the work on the novel, I realized that, you know, I needed, um, the eyes and the the experience of other uh, writers, and I applied actually to two mentorships, both uh, author mentor match. I was in round two of that, and um, writing in the margins. And I remember when I got the email that I had gotten um, accepted to. Uh, actually, it was writing in the margins accepted me first, and then I got an email maybe a couple days later that author mentor match uh, was accepting me, and I said, oh gosh, this is wonderful, but you know, I don't want to take a spot from someone else, and so I wrote back and said, you know, I, I would be okay declining and letting someone, and the person, uh, Alexa Dunn, actually wrote me back and said, the mentor who selected it really, really <laughs> was excited <laughs> about it. And, you know, if you're willing to, to do the work of working with two different people, you know, we're willing to have you. And so I did. So it was really exciting that it was, they kind of both were going on at the same time. Um, so I had feedback from two different published authors. That must have been amazing. It was totally amazing. And what was great about it was that they both were um, writing in, in slightly different areas. So my author mentor match, um, mentor was Sarah Ayers, who's a, a YA author. And for writing in the margins, uh, it's Robin Yardy, who is a middle grade author. So Sarah gave me wonderful feedback on, um, you know, the pacing and the suspense. And she, you know, she said she loves love monsters. And so she gave me a lot of, <laughs> you know, advice and suggestions about like how to increase the tension and, you know, what was, you know, what to, to say and what to kind of lead inferred. And then um, Robin was great about voice and vocabulary and, and keeping it kind of in that middle grade, um, you know, range of like, you know, length and pacing and but like voice was a big part of it. Yeah, that's something I'm working on uh, now myself. I'm working on a draft of a middle grade novel. It's my seventh draft. And I paid someone for a critique. And she's like, sometimes you have the middle grade voice, sometimes you have a tween voice, and sometimes you have an adult voice. So no, I and I definitely had that going on in my earlier drafts too. Some people said, you know, it was kind of hard to for them to figure out in my early drafts. Like, was I, you know, I was I was told I had like more of a YA voice in in um, some places, and you know, I definitely wanted it to be middle grade, so I had to work <laughs> on getting that there. What were some what were some tips that you did to help you do that? Um, I think part of it was um, word choice, um, and I know I've, I've taken a, a revision class um, uh, online and through a conference with um, Linda Sue Park, and she's amazing. And she talks about voice being um, sentence length plus word choice or vocabulary uh, comes out to voice. And I really think that was true for my work on this manuscript. Um, so sometimes I, you know, would use some word, like I remember using um, for a color, I think instead of saying yellow, I said, um, 
it was some other shade. I can't even remember what the word was because it's been so long since I changed it. And, you know, Robin would say things like, you know, you might, does it, does it sound like a 12 year old would say this? Like, is it in their voice? And so that was always my go-to question was, does this, you know, sentence or this paragraph, does it sound like something a 12 year old would say? And, um, that guided me a lot. (laughs) Yeah. That's a great question to ask for sure. And also the sentence link too. Yeah, because I think, um, you know, the, the snappiness in middle grade, you know, things you wanting things to go, you know, at a great pace, um, and then varying that as well, um, you know, it, it creates a different sort of pacing when you have a bunch of short sentences, comp- you know, compared to alternating. So all of that was really helpful. Definitely. I want to talk a little bit about, you mentioned the monster, right? And you have that 300-year-old point of view mermaid in your story. (laughs) And, you know, you you talk about how um, The Girl Who Drank the Moon by Kelly Barnhill, you know, showed you that that was something that, you know, you could do, even though it was an unconventional way. And uh, something else I thought that was, you know, a little different, although I'm seeing it more and more, is that um, I counted up, so you, um, you know, 36 chapters in your book. And nine are from her point of view. And then one is like, seems like it's a mixed point of view to me or whatever. Mm -hmm. But I'm wondering, Mm -hmm. how did you, what was that like? How did you know when to tell the story from uh, Keila's point of view and when to tell the story from Ophidia's point of view? That was really, that was actually one of the biggest challenges. And I went back and forth so much. Um, You know, as I said, you know, the girl who drank the moon was, was great and, I started my book in 2013 and that book I think was maybe the 2017 or 18 Newbery winner. So, you know, I came to it when I was already starting this book. Um, but I, you know, I, there were chap there were times where Ovidia's voice, I took it totally out because I was told, you know, you shouldn't have adult point of view in middle grade. It should just be the child point of view. And what I found was when I didn't, um, start with the the current chapter, the one that's in Ovidia's point of view where she's looking for this box that's missing, people didn't get the sense of um, magic and fantasy right away. Um, It it read a little bit more like realistic fiction. And, you know, so you could read a page or two and think it's a realistic story until you get to the part where she's hearing this mysterious hum drawing her towards, you know, this hidden box that she finds. So putting Ophidia in, um, I just got more and more confirmation over the months and years that I worked on it that it was right, that it need, the story needed to be told in alternate points of view. Um, and then I thought about like whether I should do, as you pointed out, there's only nine chapters, like whether I should kind of go back and forth and, and kind of realize that, you know, it is mostly Keela's story and I don't definitely want it to be told in her voice for most of it, but there are those moments where she makes key decisions where you you drop in and you get Ophidia's um, either reaction to that decision or, um, you know, her talking about something that is about to happen that she's going to do um, that really helped build the suspense. Um, and I also felt like it gave me a chance to explore the the storytelling, the oral storytelling traditions that I wanted to emphasize in the book. Um, because all of Ophidia's chapters have that sort of folktale st- uh, story or oral storytelling feel to it. Um, so having it pop in every now and then is like a reminder to the reader that we're in this 
story that uh, they're part of. Yeah, I love that, that Crick cracked the stories on you. I mean, it was it was so much fun each time. I was like, "Oh yeah, okay, the story's on me. Let's go." <laughs> oh, thank you. You're I, welcome. I've heard that from other other readers that said, you know, when they would read, you know, that signal crick crack at the beginning of those chapters, it kind of like got them excited, like, "Oh, okay, what's going to happen now?" <laughs> yeah, it's really fun. So you mentioned something already that you were actually writing this the first draft of the story with your students. And I was wondering, you know, in what ways teaching affects your writing and in what way writing affects your teaching? Yeah, I think um, when I decided to start trying to write professionally, um, you know, it made sense to, you know, involve my students in that process. Um, So, you know, as writing, how does teaching affect my writing? I think, um, you know, I have been teaching a while. And so I, I bring the lens of a teacher to the page. Um, there's a lot of times I know I hear m- my colleagues and, f- and friends who write middle grade who are looking for ways to um, connect with children who, you know, if they don't have their own children necessarily, or they don't work in a situation where they're interacting with kids all the time. So I feel like as a teacher, I'm really lucky because I am surrounded by kids uh, all day. And um, they're mostly the age that I'm writing for. So I have the observations. I have my conversations with them. Um, I think about um, when I've had those talks, you know, with my, you know, advisory, we have advisory in middle school. And so you you get moments where you get to talk one-on-one. I get to hear what's important to them, what matters, what, you know, is helpful to them, what hurts their feelings. And I think all of those things are so helpful to me as a writer to bring into character, um, you know, not the actual stories of students, but just the emotions, you know, and how kids feel things has been really helpful. Um, I think it also, me being a writer has been great because I can bring my students along for the publishing journey a little bit. So they've been excited for me to talk about, um, you know, how does a book get from your idea to on a bookshelf um, that you could actually go purchase or pick up at a library? Um, You know, they've learned details like most books publish on a Tuesday. (laughs) They'll hear a date and they'll say, that's a Tuesday, right? You're right. (laughs) Um, So that's great. And then I think also um, as a writer, I try to, you know, incorporate some of those, um, you know, just real world type writing experiences into what we do in the classroom. So an example would be um, my students, um, you know, we participate in the NaNoWriMo uh, project, which is National Novel Writing Month. And usually after they've written their story, I have them write a, a summary, like summary of what their story is about, and then give me a little excerpt of it to read. Um, I changed a few years ago from them writing a summary to writing a query letter. Mm-hmm. And so I taught them about how authors have to look up um you know, uh, established agents who would represent their work to a publisher. And um, it's it's basically a summary because that's what a query letter is. It gives somebody enough information to know what your story is about, but it's also a little bit of persuasive writing. So that sort of thing has been really fun to do and give them kind of the sense of what it's really like to be a, a writer who's working in, in publishing things. Now, for these query letters, do they send them to you or do you have them actually send them out or what's that like? 
No, they make a, a imaginary agent that they're writing to. And um, I actually show them manuscriptwishlist.com, the website, and um, so that they can see like pictures of what agents look like and like the list of what they say that they love. Usually on, on the webpage, it'll say, you know, um, what I'm looking for and like books that I've loved. And so they'll, you know, say um, the child has a book that they think is uh, adventure, action adventure or something. They'll look for man- for agents who are looking for that and then pull a couple like little details. So they're writing to somebody who maybe is a real agent or a made up kind of, you know, mixture of different people, but they'll make up a name, um, you know, and I always tell them, we talk about personalizing and they really <laughs> kind of go overboard a little bit. And so I, I just, I've, I've laughed at some of their letters where they'll say things like, you know, dear, you know, whoever is somebody agent, you know, um, I enjoyed meeting you at the coffee shop in Paris before the writing <laughs> conference that we attended. <laughs> I remember you said you enjoyed mysteries and here's my manuscript. <laughs> it's just, they get so creative and fun with them. And, um, Usually what we've tried to do is post them on a blog. Um, we used to use a website called Kid Blog um, that they would, so they'd all get to see each other's. And sometimes we'd invite comments from, um, you know, writing people in the community. And so that's really fun that they get to share those. Oh my gosh. Your classroom just sounds so amazing. I spent some time on your teaching portfolio, which is the most gorgeous teaching portfolio I have ever seen. Um <laughs> Thank and you, you just, you're welcome. You just do so many fantastic projects, you know, with your students. You really, you know, I mean, you're talking about, you know, giving them a window into the publishing process, but you've done some book trailers with your students as well. So they're getting all this, you know, real life experience with you that then, you know, they can take out into the world and whether or not they choose to, you know, pursue writing as a profession, they can take these skills and use them anywhere, right? I mean, personalizing a letter Like that's such an important skill to have, no matter what you do. If you are a successful writer, you'll be more successful in your profession, no matter what it is you choose. Yes, absolutely. And I think it just also gives them uh, kind of an understanding of, you know, how, you know, how you can set a goal for something and like the steps for, you know, reaching a goal and, um, and just even understanding of like, you know, most of my students are really um, active readers and they, um, you know, we use my classroom library and we, our school has a wonderful library. And so, you know, they now understand how the books that they love get to them a little bit better. Definitely. I mean, that's, you mentioned one way that you're trying to make life smoother, you know, for your students by helping them to understand how to set goals and to work toward them. And I was wondering, you know, as a writer and a teacher, what else that you do that you think helps make life smoother for your students and your readers as a result of, you know, what experience can you help them understand so life is smoother for them than it was for you growing up? I think, um, you know, so like a big thing that we do with goal setting is when we, I've mentioned NaNoWriMo before. So for uh, people who aren't familiar, um, NaNoWriMo takes place in November. It's National Novel Writing Month. And the goal is to write um, a novel in 30 days. And for adults, it's a 50,000 word novel. But for kids, people in the Young Writers Program, which is K through 12, um, they can set their own flexible goal. And so we talk a little bit about, in October, kind of leading up to it, you know, we talk about creativity and like, what does it mean to be creative and thinking about, um, you know, what are stories that they would be really interested in telling? 
And then they have to decide a goal. And I give them kind of like a, a minimal goal that, um, you know, the, the curriculum for NaNoWriMo is um, really helpful. And they suggest, you know, maybe a thousand words for every grade level the student is. So my students are fifth grade, most of the ones that, that do the NaNoWriMo program. And so I give them actually a 4,000 word goal as their minimum, just so it's really reachable. And I actually tell them, okay, so, you know, we write all the time in class, you know, most of the times, you know, your paragraphs that you do um, are about 200 words. Well, 4,000 words over a month, that's only 133 words a day. Like it's going to be a breeze. You can do that. And you can, if you decide that you're really excited and you want to set a higher personal goal, figure out what, what the daily word count would be. And if you feel like it's manageable, think about like your outside of school activities. What do you have going on? How, what will your time look like? So that whole process is really a big goal setting um, challenge for them. Um, And it, they really just love that. And we all motivate each other because they know that we're all going through it, myself included. And, um, you know, whatever they do is going to be a success because it's more words on the page than they had when they started. Um, and we'll talk about all sorts of strategies like, um, you know, how some of us, you know, have per- perfectionist tendencies. I have a lot of my students that that's a struggle. They want to edit as they write and and we'll just keep going back to the goal. Like your goal is to draft as much as you can right now. So editing, you know, is something that you need to kind of push aside, push, push aside that little editor in your head that's trying to critique everything and tell you to, you know, it's not good enough and focus on getting as much done as you can. And then there'll be a time for the critiquing and the editing later. Um, so that's been, I think, a great um a great example of, of how we try to plan something out and think about how to, you know, how we can do something that's really fun, but challenging and come through on the other side in a way that's, um, we all feel really great about what we've done. Definitely. I'm going out of order here, but you know, while we're talking about goal setting and time management, I want to know how you have organized your incredible, amazing life. So from the research I did, you've got three kids two of whom were born prematurely and have special needs. You've been teaching full-time. You you did this master's program, and your teaching portfolio, as I mentioned, is just stunning. So I would like to know, how do you manage your time? Uh, you must have an amazing supportive partner, uh, but you must, <laughs> you must also have amazing time management skills. So please, let us know how you do what you do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not easy. Um, I'm actually a, a single parent now. So a lot of um, who I lean on um, are, so I moved, I lived um, and taught in another school in Kentucky for a long time. And then about eight years ago, I moved back to the Boston area where I was born. And I have uh, my mom here, my brother here, and they, they definitely help. But um, the big thing I think is what I, I try to think about, um, you know, what's scheduling, (laughs) organizing things. So I I try to be really detail detail oriented about putting things on a calendar. (laughs) And so, you know, for things related to my kids, you know, you know, appointments and all of those things, you know, those are in the calendar. Now that I've been um, kind of in the publishing, you know, machine (laughs) and going through like, you know, since my book has been acquired and like all of the steps of the publishing process, you know, I'll put those deadlines in. um, And 
I also just have to give myself some grace at times. Um, I, you know, there's, there are times where, you know, I, I have a lot of things that I want to do, but like, I, I can't. <laughs> and so I'll say, you know, I can commit, you know, this amount of time, you know, this evening or this weekend. Um, but like, if I can't do it all, you know, I can communicate that to the people, you know, who are around me, maybe waiting, um, you know, so the, like my publicist for this book, you know, has been great with sharing opportunities and, you know, they'll say, you know, is, are these deadlines okay? I'm like, yeah, I think so. And then as things get closer, I might say, you know what, I need a little bit more time on this or that. Um, so doing that, um, just speaking up for yourself and advocating is an important thing. Um, I also am not a person, you know, there are all these writing mantras about like, you should write every day, you know, to be a real writer. And that doesn't work for me and my life and my family. Um, and so, you know, I'm thinking about writing. And I think I've heard a lot of writers say that thinking about your work is work. <laughs> you know, so if you're you're thinking about ideas and, and you know, what's important to the story, um, when you actually do sit down, when you have that moment to get to the page, it's okay. And I also try not to beat myself up if, um, you know, as a teacher, there are busy, busy times of the year where I can't. I can't focus on other things. You know, we just had report cards due about two weeks ago. So, you know, I was great as an English teacher. I was grading things seriously. And then I had to get work on my comments and all of that. And so, you know, writing things didn't get done. Right. And so, you know, I have a, a you know, my spring break will be coming up next month. So that'll be a time that um, I've actually have a, a manuscript that I've told my editor that I would try to get to her to, to end, at the end of March. So that'll be a time where I can work on that. And I've, I've tried to have things um, in my contract um, due at the end of um, the summer so that I know that I have the summertime when things are a little bit easier. Um, but yeah, I think we just all have to be, you know, realistic with ourselves about what our own lives are like. Um, and, um, you know, tell people what you need and, you know, be, it's okay to say no. I've, I try to say yes a lot to things that are great opportunities, but like there are some times where I just know I can't do that. It's just too much. <laughs> you know, that would be on my plate. Um, and it's all going to be okay. <laughs> so being flexible and, and good to yourself, I think goes a long way. So now I'm just completely stunned that you do this by yourself without a partner. I have to say that's incredible. <laughs> How long have you been by, by yourself? <laughs> uh, nine, about nine years. So since I, a little bit before I moved back to the Boston area, nine, 10 years it's been. Um, I, ha I will say of my three kids, um, they're, um, my oldest daughter is uh, 24 and she still lives with me and she's a wonderful help. So, you know, I do have a young adult in the, in the house who helps with her siblings and, um, you know, and I have now that I'm closer to family, sometimes I can call on them for a little bit of help, but, uh, but yeah, you just have to, you know, juggle and know yourself and know what your, you know, your, your limits are for what you can do and, and not feel stressed. Definitely. Not that I don't feel stressed. So how was that? What was that process like for you? That process of, you know, process of being able to say, you know what, I need more time or I need this. I mean, was that something that you had to work at? Did it come naturally? Was it just you had no other choice? What was that like for you? It's it was a learning process. And I think especially dealing with um, you know, the publishing industry, I've, I've had to learn about um, what to, 
what what's okay. Like, and again, if the communication is important for a comb of wishes, you know, as I said, I started it in 2013 and it was acquired in 2019. So that was a long period of time where I was on my own schedule with that. You know, I was revising, but nobody, there was no deadline hanging over my head except the ones that I imposed on myself. And so once I began um, working with an editor, um, you know, I had deadlines and, but there, what I've learned now is that everything is flexible as long as you're communicating to the people who um, are are waiting for things. And so uh, I was embarrassed, I think at first when, um, you know, I didn't, you know, I felt like I wasn't going to meet something. And I emailed with my editor and she said, you know, oh my gosh, you know, I know you're doing so much and I'm just amazed, kind of like you, what you said, <laughs> amazed that you're getting all of these things done. She's like, you know, of course, take, you know, tell me what, what would work. Um, and then I had a recent uh, email with her again, because I think, you know, the pandemic, <laughs> teaching during the pandemic has been a whole different, you know, ball of wax. And, um, you know, it, it affects kind of your energy and it affects your creativity. And so I had a conversation with her again about, you know, this moving goalpost that we've had. And she just said, you know, no stress, nothing for you to, to, to be you know worried about, but I have to give my, you know, my list to, you know, the, the people inside the organization so they know, you know, what books are coming out. Do you want to stay on, you know, this season's list or would you like to be moved to the next season's list? And it was great to be people say, you know what, I think I'd like to be moved to the next season if that's okay. And she's like, of course it's okay. We just, you know, it's all part of communication. So I think that there, um, you know, you definitely have to be professional and uh, respect, you know, the the time that other people are putting in, but you can also, you know, say what's working for you and, and um, what you need and um, the professionals working with you also understand and respect that. She sounds like a wonderful editor. I'm so happy for you. Yes. I, <laughs> I, I love my editor. Rosemary Brosnan at HarperCollins is wonderful. It's awesome. So you mentioned deadlines that you impose on yourself. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I think that, you know, when you don't have like accountability, um, sometimes that um, can leave you floundering a bit. And so one of the ways I did that with um, A Comb of Wishes early on was um, I actually sometimes would sign up for um, workshops, like a um, uh, feedback workshops where I knew that I would be turning in pages to other people to read and get feedback on. So that was, you know, a deadline that, you know, I chose to get to have imposed so that I was always moving forward. For a long time, I got stuck in a rut where I was revising the first part of the book over and over and over again. And I never, like, I hadn't even finished my manuscript for a little bit. And I learned okay, that's not the right way <laughs> to do things. You need to get to the end before you can really, um, you know, revise. And, and I also learned the difference between polishing and revising. And so some of what I was doing at the beginning, you know, as a, a writer that was still learning was line editing and polishing on something that really had structural changes that might need to be made. You know, I, we've talked about like, whether parts of the book were in should be in Ophidia's voice, the mermaid or Keela's voice. And so, you know, so I learned that I needed to finish the manuscript first, uh, whatever form, you know, it was in just get something done. And then 
have other people read it. So being in some of these classes that I signed up for was great to, you know, get feedback along the way. And then just on my own, I would um, set some goals. There's some really fun websites out there. Um, Pacemaker is one of them where you can put in a goal for yourself um, and say, like, I'd like to revise um, a, a chapter a week, or I would like to, whatever it is, I want to work this many minutes, or, you know, you have the book and you want to be finished with it. And then it will back kind of backwards uh, plan for you that this is what you need to do to get to that goal. So I would do things like that sometimes um, and just kind of give myself goals. Um, and then I could change them if I needed to. Um, but it was just accountability to other people and then also some some goals that kind of motivated me to keep to keep moving and making progress. Makes total sense. I find backwards planning to be really helpful. I didn't know there was a website about it, though. So I'll check that out. Maybe that will make it a lot of fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so tell us about a breakthrough moment that you had in your writing. Um, I think a breakthrough moment in the writing was I mentioned that I had gotten into this rut of revising the beginning of the story uh, a lot and not really getting to the end. And I think a part of that was I didn't know how the story should end. And um, so I think coming up with the ending for Comb of Wishes and, and no spoilers, I won't give any spoilers. I don't but, any, yeah, but it's um, gorgeous though. It's absolutely gorgeous. No. But I think one of the things was that. Um, it actually went through multiple um, revisions. The ending, there were three. One, one of the conversations when I um, was in the process of being acquired and I talked to a few different editors, um, I asked them, a question I asked them was what they thought of the ending. And um, it was telling to me which uh, editors said like, oh, they liked it. And which one said, well, actually I had planned to talk to you about that. Um, and we we talked about um, how the ending resonated or didn't resonate with the other um, the lead up and the characters. Um, so I guess a breakthrough was that that the current ending of the book actually is the one. It's a ver very close version to the original ending that I wrote. But the reason I changed it was that. Um, it didn't, I hadn't developed, I hadn't done the work I needed to do with the characters to make that ending work at mm. the beginning in that early part of the process. And so over the, you know, the years working with the mentors and the mentoring program, and then talking with my editor at the end, um, I kind of said, well, you know, there was this other ending that I had. I said, but we changed it because, you know, enough development hadn't been done um, the characters and the story. And what I realized was that ending could work because now I had done all of this other work and I had laid ground that wasn't there in the original version of the story. So that was a big breakthrough to me. And it made me happy because that was really the ending I loved. <laughs> I love the ending and I, and I did not see it. And a lot of times I feel like it, you know, at this point in my writing, you know, reading like teaching career, a lot of times I can see I can see the ending in the beginning of the book, which in one way is exciting, right? It's like, okay, mm -hmm. because it means I'm understanding, you know, more and more about how plot and how it works. And I loved your ending because I hadn't foreseen it. And I was wondering, I was wondering as I was reading, how is this going to end? You know, 
I was wondering and um and I didn't see it. And I, so that was really exciting for me. But then when I read it, I was like, oh, of course, of course, that's how it's going to end. <laughs> oh, that makes me feel so glad. <laughs> yeah, it's really, it's really spectacular. So what about your teaching? And as I said before, we started recording, I am just so impressed by what you've done with your teaching. So you've probably had like a billion breakthrough moments in your teaching, but what's one you'd like to share with us today? I think two of them relate to, they're, they're both about students um, and about like the experience of students in my classroom. Um, so the first one is that teaching is really about building relationships. Um, I know when I was a new teacher, I came into teaching um, pretty much out of college with my bachelor's degree. I didn't actually go back to graduate school like we talked about until mid-career. So I was like I had, which was actually great in some ways because I knew exactly what I wanted to focus on and what I wanted to learn at that point. But at my early part of my career, I was basically learning from the other teachers around me. Um, and one of those adages that somebody shared, which I, I hope isn't shared as much anymore, is, you know, at the beginning, you need to be really strict and stern, you know, and even like, you know, you shouldn't smile until like winter break <laughs> or something um, and be really stern so that students take you seriously. Um, and, you know, yes, I was like a young teacher. And so, you know, I was like, okay, I'm going to be really, you know, kind of like stern. And it was like absolutely the wrong advice. And I think that I, I learned that pretty quickly, but that, you know, what's important is you show your students that you care about them and that you want them, you want to help them succeed and that you think that they can succeed and that you can, they can do it. Um, I think that having those relationships, like it, it makes them so much more motivated to work hard and to, you know, try, take risks. And I think we forget sometimes as teachers that a lot of things that we kind of expect are risks for students, depending on, you know, where, what their prior experience is in school. Um, so that and students knowing that I'm approachable and non-judgmental and that I know them, I know what they like, I know their interests and I, you know, will do anything I can for them. So that was the big breakthrough that I feel like, you know, just kind of unlearning some things that, you know, some veteran teachers had suggested that maybe weren't the best things to carry forward. Um, and then I think the other thing for me was as a, uh, a literacy teacher was looking at the books and the that were part of my curriculum in my classroom library. So me, when I went to graduate school, I um, had my eyes opened um, by some things that I had never really interrogated in my classroom. Um, so one of those things was learning to do audits of my classroom library and my curriculum. And you know, we had a pretty uh, active independent reading program. Um, there's a program called Battle of the Books, which is um, in many states. And we didn't do like the, the formal program, but we kind of had our own version. And so we had these books that students would choose from. Um, and I, I would have said at the beginning um, of me starting that the program that I was in that, you know, oh, our books are very multicultural and that they're, you know, they're, they're diverse. Looking at the covers or looking at the um, topics that the books covered, but what I found was when I did a deep dive into these books as part of my um, studies, that they were not. Um, the One of the lists that I examined, I actually presented this to um, 
my English department afterwards was it had 36 books on it. And some of them um, touched on topics of maybe race um, or, or some sort of um, background of a, a person of color, but actually not a single one of those 36 books was written by an author of color. Um, and some I would have assumed were, but I just never paid attention. I, it, some of those books were handed down again from previous teachers and, um, you know, we'd done forever. And um, I was really shocked and embarrassed, especially as a, a black teacher myself and always feeling like representation um, is so important because it's, um, you know, I was a reader growing up. Um, and so I felt like I was perpetuating some harmful things that I, I didn't realize that I was. And so now I really pay attention um, to the books that I choose to highlight by having in my library and also by putting in the curriculum, making sure that um, I have really diverse experiences from authors of all sorts of backgrounds and um, you know experiences and perspectives that there's authenticity there. Um, people who are writing about their own experiences um, and then also um, weeding books is, a, is an important thing. And I know librarians understand this, but as a classroom teacher, sometimes I felt like the goal was just to get as many books as you could um, and not really paying attention to the quality always, or at least even books that were um, classics so, and had a lot of nostalgia for people, had some harmful stereotypes that, you know, I just realized that that's not, I don't want to pass those things on. So that was a big breakthrough to me was just um, paying attention to like what the story was in my classroom of the books that I was choosing to highlight either by having on my shelves or by teaching uh, and making sure that everybody was feeling that they could see themselves at some place in the curriculum or in the shelves um, and that those representations were not always focused on oppression or trauma um, that they were authentic, told by the people who lived and experienced them, and that a lot more of them needed to be joyful and just about the people and not about anything that bad that happened to them. So that was a big one. Well, I can't wait till I ask you one of the final questions of the podcast about what books do you recommend everyone should have, but I will hold off. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I have a lot to say about you know what you said. I agree completely. I think relationships are the foundation of teaching, and I don't think anything happens if that relationship isn't there. They're just, they're not going to listen to you. They're not going to trust you. Um, and then what's the point of being there? So, um, and I, and I think it's, I, that's where I put the, the most of my energy now. It's not always where I've put the most of my energy, but that's where I put it now is developing those relationships yeah. and trying Absolutely. to find some way to connect with each student, you know, and admittedly it's easier to connect with some students and others, just like with any other person in life. But it's my job to find a way to connect with each of my students. Um, and I, and yeah. I work, I work really hard to do that. And I think, I think they sense that. Um, and I think that's why, I think that's why we have a, a, a pretty good classroom community. I'm sure it could be better. And I'm sure there are other things I could be doing, but I think they know that that foundation of trust and mutual respect is there and we move forward from there. Um, Absolutely. And it makes me feel so glad when a student will ask to talk to me, you know, and tell me something either that's going on, you know, in our community that they have a concern about, or just ask me for advice on 
something that they should work on. Or the best thing is when they ask me for book recommendations and say, um, you know, do you have a book, you know, and, and I always turn it back on them. Like even in the classroom, we, we talk about books all the time and I'll, they'll say, you know, I need a book recommendation. I'm like, well, you know, we, it always starts with you. So I'm like, tell me what you like, tell me what you are looking for. Tell me the last book that you really liked. And I think all of those things, um, really help them feel like we see them and understand them and, you know, can give them good advice. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and I think, you know, as a, as a writer who teaches, you're going to have a, a very large knowledge base of possible literature out there for your students, which is just, you know, fantastic. So I, um, it's interesting. We just voted on our next read aloud. And so we do the Tiger Rising by Kate DiCamillo. And then for the first time this year, I did all 13 by Christina Soontornbat, which I'd never done as a read aloud before. Oh. Um, so that was, that was really, the kids loved it actually. And it was very long. It's a long book to read aloud and there's a lot of technical vocabulary, but they, <laughs> they were spellbound. They could not, they just, they wanted to read that book. That's they wanted amazing. to find out what happened. Yeah, it was incredible. And then they wanted to watch the movie, The Rescue. So I watched it with my uh. husband and my husband never has nightmares about anything we watch. It's always me. And he had a nightmare. So I told the kids, I said, oh, I no. think- I said, I think you're going to have to ask your parents about that if you want to watch that with them at home. Because <laughs> I said, <laughs> yeah. Mr. Narita had a nightmare and Mr. Narita never has nightmares. <laughs> and they were like, okay, we'll ask our parents. I'm like, yeah, you're going to have to ask at home. Because <laughs> the footage is just so, <laughs> yeah, the footage is pretty intense. It's one thing to read about it. It's another thing to see it. And then the end of our year in our historical fiction unit, we read uh, Stella by Starlight aloud by Sharon Draper. So the first two books... The Tiger Rise and, and Sell It by Starlight, they're kind of what we always do with curriculum. And so this read-aloud we're going to do right now is the one I give kids a chance to vote on. <clears throat> so I had five books, and we said, I said, okay, I'm going to read you the first chapter of each one, and then we'll vote. And I thought for sure they were going to vote for Inkling because when they had seen the book covers, that was what they said they were all going to vote for. But I read them in alphabetical mm-hmm. order. And the first one I read was uh, Cece Rios and the Desert of Souls by Kayla Rivera. And they were like, oh, my goodness. And then that was the book that won. And I couldn't believe it. <laughs> I was, like, so excited. I'm like, okay, this is great. So, you know, we've got, you know, the book that that features, you know, white people. We've got the, the book that, you know, the nonfiction book about the Thai soccer team. We've got Cece Rios. And then we're going to end with, you know, Stella, Sharon Draper Stella. So I felt like, okay, mm-hmm. this is a nice it's not everyone for sure, but at least it's a nice variety of main characters that we're going to read about in the book or in the case of all 13, which is not characters, actual people, you know? Um, so I felt, yeah. I, I feel like this is by far the best read aloud year I've had in terms of representing different voices. Yeah. And I think it's all about kind of like the, the scope and sequence kind of, of, of the, the middle school or the high school, depending. Cause I know when I've, um, you know, one of the things that my, my roles at my current school is a um, uh, facilitator for the affinity group for students of color for right now, I'm uh, facilitating for black and Latina students. But at my previous school, we just had one group for, you know, all, all BIPOC people. And we asked students at one point, you know, where had they seen themselves in the curriculum? Um, and I remember one of my students who was an eighth grader who I've had as a fifth grader, said um, she had not seen herself anywhere in the curriculum. She was Pakistani 
at all in the four years uh, at the school. So not in, not in a class study novel, not in books on the shelves, not anywhere, not in, you know, content that they studied in social studies. So I think it's, yes, like in a single year, you can't necessarily touch on like all experiences. And, but I think it's like looking at the, uh, and talking with like your colleagues at the school too, about like where in the, the scope and sequence of like what we offer and teach our kids getting that, that moment. And, um, it helps to be able to, to, to have the, you know, have it that you've thought about it so that somewhere you're, you're touching on things. Yeah. I mean, conversations, that's the first step. If the conversations aren't happening, it's hard to make any changes from there. <laughs> right. Absolutely. So, um, I saw in your back matter, not your back matter. I saw in your author's note that you talked about Quelly and I've had one guest on the podcast talk about that, but I was hoping you could talk about it because, um, it wasn't something I had heard of until, I interviewed uh, Valerie Bowling, so I was hoping that you could also mm. tell listeners about it. Yeah, Valerie's a good friend of mine. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Quelly is, um, it's called the Quelly Children, Color of Children's Literature Conference, um, and I believe it just had its 10-year anniversary. Um, it is run by the Quelly um, uh, Literature Journal. Um, Laura Pegram is the editor of that. And so she used to work in children's publishing. Um, and she saw the need for um, that so many conferences for writers. And unfortunately, if you're a writer of color, you're often in kind of like the numerical minority. There's just not a lot of us um, that for whatever reasons, it, um, you know, whether it's um, just the distance, where the conferences are located, um, just you're kind of in a small number. And so she started this conference as a way to provide like a, an affinity space for authors of color to come. Um, it's located in New York, where Quilly, uh, where she is. And of course, that's like a publishing hub. And it's been supported by so many wonderful um just publishers, editors, agents um, who come and present and, and offer critiques. Um, I really count Quelly as like one of the reasons I eventually um, was published. I have been attending for about five or six years. Uh, from when I first heard of it, I was like, you know, I need to get to that place. It sounds wonderful. Um, and it really is like you go in and it's, um, and it's a space that like everyone they're like surrounded by authors and illustrators and creators and, and publishing professionals who all look like, like us, you know, they're black and brown, like it's such an affirming space. Um, and then the opportunities, um, to talk to professionals and get their feedback. I've had some great critiques from, um, I know one year I talked to Cheryl Klein uh, at Lee and Lowe about a manuscript I was working on. Another year I talked to, um, you know, just Arthur Levine, um, just wonderful people. Um, and again, it's just the, the biggest thing is just kind of like the affirmation. Like you leave there as a person who sometimes kind of always feels like, you know, you're one of just a few. Um, and even in education, sometimes we feel that way because, um, you know, being a, a black woman, a woman of color, like I'm not in the majority in my, my school environment. And then also not being feeling that way in the writing environment, like to go somewhere where, um, 
everybody is having the same experience and they can relate and also tell you what they've done and we can share each other's successes. So um, I've been many times, I'm actually presenting this year on two panels for Quayley for the first time. So I'm really excited about that. Um, one is about science fiction and fantasy. Um, and the other is um, just about like your publishing journey. Um, back in 2019, uh, Quayley instituted their first manuscript award. And I was really proud and humbled to um, have a comb of wishes um, chosen as the winner of that manuscript contest. And um, so Quayley is really important to a lot of people. And I really um, enjoy and respect and, and support them. Well, that's great. If people want to sign up, is there still time to sign up for this year's conference? Yeah, there is. Um, if you just Google Quelly Color of Children's Literature Conference, it will take you to the link. Uh, registration actually hasn't opened yet for this year. It's going to be virtual. The last couple of years because of the pandemic, um, it's been virtual. They were trying to do an in-person conference this year and, and just yeah. with the surge, they decided to go virtual again. So um, it hasn't opened. So there's still time. Uh, the conference takes place the last weekend in March. Um, so it should be great. Well, good luck with your presentations. That's exciting. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. So um, what advice do you have for teachers who want to write and haven't started or they're just beginning their writing careers? First thing I would say is to to do it. <laughs> that I, th I think sometimes I hear, you know, because we have so much on our plate as teachers, we're always being asked to do more. And um, I've had people say to me, whether it's about writing or just other things sometimes like, oh, I would love to do X, Y, Z, but like, I just never have the time. Um, so one I would say is like, just try, you know, we can always, you know, I think sometimes it's um, doing these things that we enjoy and want to do are, are like a way of self-care. And we've all talked about how important self-care is during the pandemic and making time for yourself. Um, so that would be the first thing, nurturing your own creativity can make you happier and definitely is important. Um, the second thing I would suggest is if somebody decides to do it um, is to kind of put on your, your educator, you know, your learner hat a little bit um, and learn about publishing and about writer's craft. That was what I did. I realized that when I wanted to start writing that I didn't, you know, I obviously was a reader and I taught, you know, I could look at a book um, as, you know, we do as readers, but being the writer, there were things that I didn't know. And so I started looking into what organizations support writers that I might uh, be able to either join or just go to their events. Um, I started looking for books about writing craft and attending conferences. And then I would say most importantly, find out about um who the people are that might be able to um, give you feedback on your work. So looking for critique groups, there's some great ones locally that meet through different organizations, but also online. Um, I'm, uh, I'm part of a website called Inked Voices and they, that's their thing is um, finding uh, an online space that uh, writers can privately share among themselves and it's very organized. So there's all sorts of different places to do that, to find people that you can share your work with. Um, and I think the last thing is just that it, it's a long journey sometimes. And so it can be very fulfilling, but that you just have to be patient and, you know, persistent, but know that you're doing it for yourself and, and just nurturing yourself too. I love Inked Voices. I've 
I think this is my third year now in Inked Voices, and they just, I mean, they offer so much. They offer critique groups, they offer classes, and it's a great way to meet people. I I mentioned earlier that I paid for a critique, and I actually met that person through Inked Voices. You know, I took um, a class with her this past June, and she was talking about something, and I said, oh my gosh, this is what's wrong with my writing. This is why it hasn't been working, you know, and I've been... I've been writing for 18 years and how, and I, I have an MFA and, you know, and I've taken like multiple courses and, and either how come I never saw this before or no one else ever saw it, or maybe just wasn't ready. I don't know what, but I, I was taking the course with actually someone who I'm in an in-person critique group with as well. And she's like, this is what's wrong with my writing. I said, I know me too. Wow. And so it was great because now we meet often and we change work and we're looking at it from this new lens. And so I don't know. It's why I hired the woman to critique my work because I'm like, this is it. Yeah. This is this is what has been missing. And if I can somehow fix this, which I'm not, I have not quite fixed it yet, but at least I know what I need to do. Whereas before, I just exactly. felt like I was just spinning my wheels, like making the same mistake over and over again, but not knowing what that mistake was. So I don't know. Right. I can't speak highly enough of Ink Voices. They're just fantastic. I agree. And that was when you asked me the question about um, setting deadlines for yourself. That was actually how I started with signing up with one of their, um, they had a multi-month workshop. And I, I did it a couple times. And actually, the um, the writers that were in the first group, we kind of made our own little group and, and shared some work. But it was just a great um accountability. And then, you know, I, I, I've actually met people in um, their community who live local enough to me who, you know, I've become friends with. So I think having any way that you can find a writing community, but that's a, a great uh, site for that as well. I agree. hundred <laughs> <laughs> percent. So uh, what's one writing exercise or activity that you do in your classroom that other people could do? You've talked about the NaNoWriMo, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. So I like I said, I feel like I could talk to you about this for hours, but we're our time is running out. So <laughs> tell us, yeah, tell us what you think. Um, so I think again, going back to that idea of like real world or real writing world type um activities is kind of fun to bring to a classroom to kind of let students know like this is what something that a writer might actually do who's a professional writer. Um so my students, my sixth grade students, I teach fifth and sixth, um, recently wrote uh, short stories. And we um, have been reading Ralph Fletcher's book called Live Writing, um, which is wonderful, nonfiction book written for young writers uh, with lots of different tips and suggestions. And so normally we try to have them maybe write a reflection after writing like a big major piece. But what we did this year, or actually a couple of years ago, that we've re- repeated it again because it's been so great is have them write a letter to their editor. So instead of writing just a reflection, you know, that the, just the teacher will see, they write it as if they're writing to an editor um, who, so we say your short story has been selected for an anthology and it's going to be published. You know, you have an editor now that you're turning in, you know, your, your latest version, um, write a letter to your editor and explain your process for writing this. So, you know, what were the things that you tried to do? What are you hoping that they see in this revision? Um, and so that was just kind of fun. They, again, they love kind of the creative aspect and, you know, they were like, what's our editor's name? I'm like, I don't know. You can decide what the editor's name is. So <laughs> they make that up. 
And, um, but it's just the, the importance of metacognitive work. I mean, I think as teachers, we all know that reflection is so important that you learn from reflecting on what you do so that you can apply that to the next thing. And so framing that as you're writing to somebody explaining what choices you made and giving examples from your work um, has been really helpful. Like I love reading those before I read their actual work because it gives me so much insight into what they were trying to do or reading their work first and then reading the reflection. But um, those letters to the editors are, are great and just so rich with kind of like their thinking. That sounds really fascinating. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. <laughs> and I just want to say again, I think for the hundredth time on the podcast that you do have a teaching portfolio online so people can check out more wonderful ideas there to see some other, you know, fantastic activities to try in their own classroom. And I love how on your portfolio, you actually include the worksheets that you gave to your students to help them like plan the book trailer and things. I think, you know, mm -hmm. I've tried to do book trailers a little bit with students like in book clubs and whatnot and it's just not turned out well and I think it's because I myself didn't understand like all the different parts and looking at your worksheet where you had the kids apply for certain jobs like director or storyboarder or you know copy editor or actors I said oh this is why it hasn't worked out because I myself didn't really understand how to do it and so I think um that's another one another great aspect of your portfolio is that you have resources on there that will scaffold for educators like myself who don't have the same background knowledge that you do to help them do something new with their students. So I really appreciate that. Yeah. Thank you for being so generous. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> no, I, and I love when other educators share, um, you know, I know there's a huge community of educators on Twitter and um, I definitely, you know, appreciate when some of them will share something that they've done and I've adapted, um, there's a, um, a teacher who teaches fifth grade named Jess Lifshitz, who shares all the time. She has a blog um, where they, her students will, um, you know, just talk, like analyze picture books and talk about how they use things as mentor text or like the inquiry process. And so I always try to pay things forward when I, when I can, because I've benefited from other teachers who've done the same. Yeah. I mean, why not? Right. I mean, that's what we're all here for is to learn and to become better people. And so one way we can do that is by sharing what we've learned to help others out along the way. Yes. No. Well, thank you for making it so accessible for everybody. So um, just for fun, what are some books that you think, you know, every fifth and sixth grade classroom should have that you haven't written? And I know this is a really hard question. People dislike it because how can we possibly talk about how the books that people, you know, would, would be great to have in the classroom. But if you could let us know from your perspective, I would really appreciate it. Yeah. And, and I think it's like for, you know, for me, I have been trying to keep up with kind of like everything that is new and current. Um, but there's some books too that have been out for a while that are just wonderful for different reasons. So one I would recommend if teachers haven't um, read it yet or haven't thought about using it is One Crazy Summer by Rita Williams Garcia. Um, my class just finished reading that and it's, um, you know, just an award-winning book, but it's also really interesting because it's, um, you know, it's got some family issues, but that aren't so pat and um, perfect. Um, 
you know, the girl, the three, it's about three girls who, uh, in 1968, so it's historical fiction, they go to spend a month with their mother that they haven't met uh, or seen since she left them um, about six years earlier. And so um, their mother is not a very likable character at the beginning of the book. um, But really the story is about like the relationship between main character Delphine and her mother and coming to understand who she is and what, and why she's done the things she's done and also getting, explaining to her mother, you know, why she's important to her. So that such a great book about family and love. Um, I, it also touches on the black Panther party, which I feel like is something that isn't really hadn't at all been um, touched on in any middle grade books before this one. Um, and it's maybe not understood well by people, but it has really solid connections to the current movements supporting black lives and empowerment. So that was a great one that I would recommend and my students really enjoyed it. Another book I would recommend is a fantasy, um, the barren grounds by David a Robertson. It's a portal fantasy. So, um, Think of like the Chronicle of Narnia, of uh, you know, going through a wardrobe. It's very, um, you know, similar type of thing where two children um, who are Cree, uh, and David Robertson is an indigenous author. He's Cree, and so these characters are also Cree, and they're both foster children. Um, one of them is an artist, and he draws a picture, and it kind of opens magically and takes to them to this place called the Barren Grounds that's stuck kind of in an, an eternal winter. And um, it draws on like Cree traditional stories of the stars and constellations. Um, again, it touches on like things like um, those the elements that kids will kind of connect with if they've read any of the books like The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. They'll see like little nods to that. Um, but it also touches on like the whole issue of um, the foster care system um, and how it um, really disrupts Native um, American and Indigenous culture and um, just how that has like caused some children to lose contact with their identity. And that's something that the main character goes through. Um, that was one of the books that was part of the Global Read Aloud this year that my students really loved. And it's part of a trilogy as, as well as One Crazy Summer is part of the trilogy. So teachers and students could continue on in that those same worlds with those characters if they really would like to. Yeah, I mean, those are two great recommendations. It's interesting because, so um, Cece Rios and the Desert of Souls, like one of the recommendations on the back of the book says, oh, it's like, it's like Narnia set in the desert. And I read it and I was like, I don't feel that way at all about this book. I love the book, but I did not feel like that was a, that was true. A good, a coup, yes. No, I didn't feel that way at all. And then I saw Barren Grounds. They're like, it's like Narnia. And I was like, oh, hold on, hold on here. Like, <laughs> here they go again. Uh, here they go again. But actually I was like, okay, now this book, I see the connection. And so I, I really like both books, but I feel like if people are going to compare to Narnia, like they were looking for a book because they like Narnia, that Barren Grounds is, is the way to go there. I feel like CC Rios offers something different, but I don't know, maybe other people, obviously other people don't, didn't feel that same way, but I, I felt like what you said. I felt like, okay, I can, I can see why this book is being compared to, you know, compared to Narnia. So yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I think I'm looking forward to teaching um, a new book this year in the spring. I um, 
read and love uh, The Parker Inheritance by Varian Johnson. And so we're going to do that one in the spring. And, um, you know, he, he, in his author's note, nods to The Westing Game. And I think there's been so many fun books um, that kids have loved over the years um, that have like those puzzles and mysteries and trying, you know, kids following clues. Um that I think that is going to be great. And that book also touches on kind of like a history of, um, you know, racism in this town in Mississippi where the main character goes to stay um, with her grandmother and kind of uncovering like these hidden stories that have been kind of buried. So I'm really looking forward to that. And I think that a lot of readers would enjoy that if they haven't read it yet. Definitely. I love the Parker inheritance. I love Varian Johnson's work. And he also touches upon same sex marriages and relationships mm-hmm. in that book. And so I think for, yeah. you know, students who come from, you know, families with two dads or two moms, that's another important reason why people should have that book in their classroom as well. Yes, absolutely. You know, interesting about, um, you were talking about how the foster care system disrupts identity for, you know, people coming from Native American backgrounds. And I just listened to Res Dogs by Joseph Brukak. And although that's not the focus of that story, it is, it's also touched upon in there as well. And so I think, I think those two books would be interesting to uh, kind of read side by side, Res Dogs and The Barren Grounds. It would be, I think, interesting, you know, pairing there. And I think some of Christine Day's uh, books, um, they're on my reading list. And, um, but I know from having book talk them also touch on, you know, the history of, you know, either uh, foster care or adoption and also kind of like that hidden identity and coming to know yourself. So I think there's um, lots of comparisons that could happen between these books by native authors. I don't know her, so I'll, I'll look into that. Thank you very much for mentioning that. Uh, sure. Yeah. One of her books is I Can Make This Promise. Um, and The Sea in Winter is, I think, her most recent book. All right. I'm writing those down here. <laughs> All right. Okay. All right. Well, thank you very much. I so appreciate that. No. All right. So <laughs> just for fun, what's something that's been bringing you a lot of, a lot of joy recently? I um, am a knitter and I sometimes um, don't make the time to do it. But when I do, it like does bring me joy and just like that relaxation. So um, right after my my comments and report cards were due a couple of weeks ago, <laughs> I pulled out a project that I had been working on a little um, uh a cowl, like a neck scarf, um, that was in a C scale pattern. So again, kind of going along with coma wishes. Um, and I'm trying to get that done soon, but it's just, it's, I learned how to knit when I was in elementary school, they had a club at school and they had volunteers who came in and showed the kids. And, um, and I, when I was in college, I was like, you know, I'd like to actually make things and <laughs> learn how to like to read a pattern. And I took a class. And so over the years, just, um, I've always knit, but, you know, sometimes, you know, I'll have to I take a break that life gets busy, but it's always something that when I pull it back out, um, I love to, to just work with my hands and make something really pretty with soft, wonderful, colorful yarn. So that's been so fun. Well, if you finish it, you can wear it to your book readings. 
Yes. <laughs> I'm hoping that I, uh, that I, I finish. I want to, um, to gift a couple of them to some of the, my editor and, and agent people who've worked so hard with me on this book. And so working on getting those done. Oh, that's so exciting. They will absolutely treasure that. Yeah. Well, Lisa, thank you so much. I have treasured our conversation and I just am so excited to get your book into my students' hands. And I just really appreciate you taking the time for to talk with us today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I really have enjoyed having this conversation today. Thank you for having me. You are so welcome. I hope you have a great day. Thank you. You too. Thanks. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to Chalk and Ink. It's homework time. Have you ever wanted to learn how to surf? Then you'll like this assignment. Pick up a copy of Samira Surfs by Roxana Ghidro. Once you start reading, you'll find many sweet spots within the novel's pages. And if you're really adventurous like Samira, you just might find a sweet spot on a surfboard too. When you're listening to these interviews, do you ever think, wow, this author seems like an amazing educator. I wish she could teach my class for the day. Well, you're in luck. If you become a Chalk and Ink Patreon supporter, you can have access to teaching videos by April Jones Prince, Marcy Flincham Atkins, Zeta Elliott, Aaron Dealey, Renee Colacolainez, and today's guest, Lisa Stringfellow. It must cost a fortune to access these videos, right? Nope. Just $3 for each podcast episode. I'll only be releasing six more podcast episodes this school year. That means for $18, you can bring all of these authors into your classroom. That's what I call a sweet deal. Lisa Stringfellow generously donated a copy of A Comb of Wishes to a lucky podcast listener. You know the deal by now. You can tweet or retweet this episode and be sure to tag Lisa and me. You can leave a comment on my website on this episode's post. You can leave a comment on the Chalk and Ink Facebook page or become a Patreon supporter. Please make sure to do one of these actions by Friday, March 11th, and the winner will be announced on Friday, March 18th. Are you still listening and wishing you could support the podcast in some way, but there's no way you have $3 to donate for each episode? No worries. Write a review and help me spread the word so more listeners will discover this podcast. Finally, I want to give a shout out to Sarah Brannon for Chalk and Ink's podcast art and congratulate her again on her Seabird honor for summertime sleepers. All right. Take care, everyone. See you soon. Bye.